Hi, I'm Malcolm Harkins, Global Chief Information Security Officer for Silence Corporation, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to the 40th edition of IP Fridays. We are thrilled to announce that our episodes have been downloaded 33,000 times by today. Today we are joined by Malcolm Harkins, who is a former VP of Intel Corporation and now Global Chief Information and Security Officer at Silence Inc. We also have a story about the registration of recreational drones. Then we have news from the Unified Patent Court. And one small thing before all that is that I have a small announcement on my own. Uh, yesterday I launched my YouTube channel, so you can check it out at ipfridays.com slash YouTube, ipfridays.com slash YouTube. So, Ken, tell me about the registration of the drones. Rolf, a popular gift this holiday season is sure to be a drone. With nearly 700,000 drones likely to be purchased by the end of this year, regulators in the United States have announced a plan for mandatory registration to track recreational drones purchased by an ever-expanding group of hobbyists and aviation enthusiasts. Driving the need for a national registration system in the United States is the increase in reports of interference with general aviation and other disturbances to the peace. On October 19th, The Federal Aviation Administration announced that a mandatory system for tracking recreational drones will likely be up and running by the upcoming holiday season. How the drone registration system will operate is yet to be announced, but those details are currently being discussed by a task force consisting of approximately 25 government officials and industry leaders. The drone registration system may include registration of the drone purchaser and the drone itself at the time of purchase. In addition, there may be an online registration portal set up which would require the drone purchaser to confirm an understanding of the applicable rules for operating a drone in the United States. It is thought that the National Drone Registration System will help cut down on interferences and dangers posed to the general aviation and public. U.S. Transportation Secretary Anthony Fox said, Registering unmanned aircraft will help build a culture of accountability and responsibility, especially with new users who have no experience operating in the U.S. aviation system. Vox also said the system will help protect public safety in the air and on the ground. The mandatory registration system will apply to newly purchased drones and drones that have already been purchased. Details on how exactly the regulators will require the mandatory registration from this group of purchasers will likely be part of recommendations due out by November 20th of this year, just in time for what will likely be a surge in sales in drones, as consumers snap up gifts for their friends and family. 
We'll have more news on the registration system as it becomes available. Reporting for IP Fridays, I'm Ken Suzanne. Thank you, Ken. I also promised you to tell you the latest news about the Unified Patent Court. The Unified Patent Court uh, just uh, published uh, last Tuesday on October 27 a press release where they say that the rules of the procedure for the Unified Patent Court have been adopted by the preparatory committee. This version of the rules is now expected to enter into force. If you want to read the rules, then you can go to ipfridays.com slash UPC rules, one word, U-P-C-R-U-L-E-S. Last but not least, we have a great interview with Malcolm Harkins, former VP of Intercorp. Ken, take it away. Ralph, I'm joined today by Malcolm Harkins, who is the Global Chief Information Security Officer at Silence, Inc. Prior to joining Silence, Mr. Harkins was Vice President and Chief Security and Privacy Officer at Intel Corporation. Mr. Harkins is the author of several publications, including Managing Risk and Information Security, Protect to Enable, and Introduction to IT Privacy, a handbook for technologists. Mr. Harkins graduated from the University of California, Irvine, with a BA in Economics in 1989, and also holds an MBA from the University of California, Davis, Graduate School of Management. Welcome, Malcolm, to IP Fridays. Thanks. Malcolm, can you tell me a little bit about Silence? You bet. Silence is a company that was started uh, almost four years ago um, by Stuart McClure, who was former Worldwide Chief Technology Officer at McAfee, and Ryan Perma, who also used to be the chief scientist at McAfee. And Silence was created to focus on doing a few different things, primarily the prevention of malware. And mm -hmm. as well, we also have a professional services arm that helps companies uh, deal with issues and incidents and doing uh, code reviews and compromise assessments. Interesting. And your role at Silence, what is the role of a chief privacy officer when it comes to cybersecurity? You know, the role of chief privacy officer, I think it can vary in multiple companies, but primarily it is one of understanding the privacy risks that are associated with the company's practices and collection and processing and management of personal information. Now, the thing that I think gets a little confusing for many folks is they think of personal information just as your social security number, your bank account number, or, or other items that are normally codified um, that way in, in, in at least U.S. law. But growingly, when I think of the role of chief privacy officer, particularly in the context of information risk and cybersecurity, it is all the elements of what you're doing, when you're doing it, how you're doing it, and in many cases, the machine data that, in essence, is how you're using your computer and when you're using it, what language you're using it, what websites you're visiting. That digital footprint, in some context, is also a level of personal information 
that we need to understand and we need to appropriately protect and we need to appropriately and transparently tell our customers and our employees how we're collecting it, how we're processing it, and what we're using it for. Yeah, that's well said. Now, how do you balance what you've learned uh, in-house at Intel with what outside consultants and counsel offer our best practices for cybersecurity? You know, it's a great question. I think in many ways there's a lot of similarities to what you would find in terms of best practices. Mm -hmm. And the security community or what you read um, out in publications, whether it be NIST standards, ISO standards, uh, the SANS best practices, the ISACA best practices, all those things. I think there's a level of similarity to many of them. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I focus on and try and simplify things in some ways is there's basically three primary types of controls you can have within an organization to manage and mitigate not only security risks, but privacy risk or business continuity disaster recovery type risks when it comes to the, the broad technical risk that a company might face. And the three categories are you can prevent the risks, and you can do that through a strong security development lifecycle, privacy by design, good hygiene and systems management, as well as prevention of malware from executing on your systems, which is driving most of the risk cycle that we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. Then you've got two control categories that are detection and response. Detection and response are, in reality, damage minimization controls. Because if you're detecting and responding to things, the bad things are already starting to occur. And the only kind of measurable things you can do in detection and response is reduce your time to contain and time to detect. And so those become the knobs of value when you get into detection and response. How fast can you detect things and how quickly can you respond to them? Mm-hmm. And so when I look at all of the perspectives that are shared out there in the world, I would say that the vast majority of the security industry has defaulted to detection and response. And they're not doing enough focus on prevention. And if you think of it as a process control chain, starting with prevention, then detection, and then response, I call it a kind of a shift left. And we've got to continue to focus on how do we shift left and and more upstream in the prevention of these things rather than stay stuck in the detection and response, which increases not only the cyber risk, but also the privacy risk um, that our companies and uh, employees and consumers face. Malcolm, you, you mentioned malware. Are you finding that the malware is becoming more and more sophisticated and hard to disable? Is this something that we need to be worried about? Um, it's, a, again, a great question. In, in some ways, yes, and in other ways, no. I think the security industry itself, if you think about it, the security industry grows when issues arise. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so there's a, in essence, a, a, an economic incentive for the vast majority of the security industry to continue to have an insecure environment because that's how they grow their business. And that's why detection and response has grown so much is because people are focused on profiting from the insecurity of computing versus figuring out how to truly protect computing through proper prevention of malware from executing. And if you do that, then, you know, uh, you end up in a lower risk, lower cost, better user experience Mm -hmm. um, uh, set of circumstances. So I think you need to think about, you know, again, the incentives of who's doing what and what their focus is. And again, that's a getting back to uh, a little bit about silence. Our primary focus is on the prevention of malware prior to execution. And we do that through artificial intelligence, machine learning, and essentially mathematics on an agent that we create that goes on your endpoint device, and it's not connected to the cloud, uploading stuff and downloading things constantly. It's not using signatures or other detection mechanisms to figure it out. We're doing a math calculation based upon the scientific work we've done to understand what features and what attributes in files, binaries, and executables have malicious likelihood, um, and we embed that in the agent. And then the math determines within a few milliseconds prior to the execution of a file or a binary or an executable, good from bad. Wow. That's really fascinating. And that, you know, is a massive differentiator for us and not only what our motivations are, um, but in what we're achieving. And right now we're achieving greater than 99% effectiveness in prevention of all the malware we're encountering mm-hmm. with with no performance impact on the endpoint. It's generally less than 1% CPU and memory. So it's exceptionally lightweight and exceptionally improving the user experience because you don't have the degradation of the computing that occurs with most other endpoint security solutions that are constantly doing communication back and forth to the cloud. They're constantly looking for signatures or looking for behaviors and essentially sucking away the CPU and memory resources of the computer. We do a math calculation in milliseconds and determine good from bad. Wow. Well, that's that's good to know that that these services are out there, uh, especially in this world where we're, you know, we're hearing about these attacks and and uh, infiltrations into computer systems on almost a daily basis. Um, let's say I'm a member of of a board board of directors. Um, what do I need to be thinking about when it comes to cybersecurity and protecting my company's IP? Well, cybersecurity is again. Uh, broader than just necessarily protecting intellectual property. I think that's that's certainly one component of it. So first, they need to think well beyond just the protection of IP and think about the entirety of the cybersecurity cycle and the fact that their company, even if it's a traditional brick-and-mortar company, 
might actually be creating technology that's used as a part of their products and services. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they have to think about the product quality and the security and privacy of the products and services they're producing. So that's, that's one angle of it. There is the intellectual property side, your designs, your know-how, um, that sort of thing. And it's an interesting thing when you get to intellectual property protection because in order for you to generate revenue and, and have your kind of economic value, the heart of that is, in many ways is that intellectual property. But you have to use that intellectual property. You have to create that intellectual property. You have to enable your employees to innovate around the intellectual property. And in doing that, that means that you're exposing the intellectual property to the collaborative processes within your company and to the collaborative processes potentially with partners. Mm -hmm. And so you need to think about it from the training of the people. How do you classify the intellectual property? Um, what type of confidentiality agreements you have? So the legal angle of it. And then when you get into the, the actual I'd say technical controls around that intellectual property, you have to think about things like enterprise rights management and encryption and how you store that data and how you transmit that data, as well as, again, looking at what the biggest contributor to um, kind of the IP risk is basically two variables. One being malware that's getting into your environment that's trying to uh, take the intellectual property and learn your know-how. And again, that can be solved through malware prevention. And again, some of the other preventative things that I mentioned earlier. And then the other aspect is insiders and somebody who might go leave for a competitor, somebody who might mistakenly tell too much to the world about your secret sauce and your ingredients and what you're using and how you're using them. And those, again, kind of default to how do you look for an insider who might be maliciously trying to steal intellectual property? And, again, how do you prevent, detect, and respond to that thing uh, as an insider? Or, again, the mistakes that can occur. And how do you make your workforce less likely to make mistakes? And how do you use some of the technical capabilities you can put in place, like rights management, to mitigate um, the potential mistakes that people can use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Malcolm, what do you think is driving the risk or vulnerability cycle we are seeing today across every industry, including the public sector? Well, I think there's a, there's a few things that are driving the, the risk cycle. Fundamentally, um, the issue starts with the fact there's vulnerabilities in technology mm -hmm. in the creation of it. And you're never going to have a hundred percent error free or code that's written perfect. So you're always going to have some level of vulnerability, but I go primarily it starts with that. And I don't think there's enough focus on having an adequate security development lifecycle or privacy by design in most companies in the design, the development, and the management of technology. If that got addressed, the hygiene would be better, and that would reduce the risk cycle, or it certainly would make it um, harder 
for the bad guys to get into things because they'd have to work harder. Um, the second aspect of it is, again, the malware. And this goes back to the comments that I made earlier. Most of the security industry is focused on growing their revenue streams, growing the security industry, which means they inherently are focused on profiting from the insecurity of computing. And most of the risk cycle we're seeing today is because of malware executing in a company that starts with the endpoint, the device that the user's using, that gets malware installed because they plug a USB in, they click on a website, they open um, a link, they do something that is either somebody who targeted them or they just happen to be going to some site that a bad guy has a link into and when you click on a link or open a document or something, you've got the malware installed. And so we have to focus on how do you prevent malware and again, shift left. How do you prevent it from even executing? And then if you do that, you won't be 100% effective in doing that. But what I've seen, what I know, and what I see from our customers is you can be greater than 99% effective in prevention of malware prior to it executing. If we did that, you would greatly reduce the... News headlines that we see all the time, you greatly reduce the cost, the investigation, the legal liability, and then you could really then truly focus on the smaller number of incidents and events um, and really kind of, again, focus on how do you improve your time to detect and time to contain. So in essence, we're saying lock it down before it even becomes a problem. Uh, yes, but at the same time, I don't necessarily believe in locking down computing. Okay. If I am locking down my computer environment, and there's some environments that that makes sense. Right. But I've bought, I've bought computing. I've invested in technology because I want productivity. I want a good experience. I want the freedom to communicate, to collaborate, to create new ideas and new revenue streams and new engagement opportunities. And mm -hmm. if I lock it down, that's like putting it in a safety deposit box, which right. means I can't do much with it. Well, I was saying and sort so, of the, mal the malware, like lock that down before it starts. It's exactly. A problem. It, it, yeah. Exactly. It is a preemption on the execution of the malware prior to it ever being able to install. That's right. That's the point I was trying to make. Now, what does the future look like? You know, we're here almost into 2016. What do you think we're going to be reading about uh, come January, February, or, or into into the next few years? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I think we're going to see, considering what I'll, I'll say is the baggage of vulnerabilities that that we have in technology today, I think we will continue to see more things in the press around organizations getting breached, um, privacy issues, that type of stuff. I think we will see more in the Internet of Things vulnerabilities, like the cars that, that have a vulnerability that somebody could take over, or potentially your 
home uh, IP addressable uh, air conditioning and heating unit. I think we will see more things in that Internet of, uh, of Things area start having vulnerabilities and those getting reported, and hopefully they won't be impactful. So I think there's going to be this continued cycle of real as well as perceived growth of vulnerabilities and exploits that are going to occur. But I also think there's really kind of hope on the horizon. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I left Intel to join Silent. I wanted to focus on shifting left and truly preventing and creating a strategic bend in the curve of risk. Um, because I believe that if we don't do that over the next several years, uh, as technology proliferation occurs, we're going to have a greater societal risk as our individual well-being is more intertwined with technology mm -hmm. uh, for, medical, for medical purposes or in our cars and in our homes. And so I think we will continue to see breakthroughs like Silence is doing on how do you prevent malware. And I hope that we will see more companies come in and invest in creating capabilities that allow for better design of technology that eliminates the vulnerabilities versus just tools that allow you to design technology. And then you have to go do the security work after the fact to try and reduce the vulnerabilities of what you just designed. I'd mm -hmm. like to see that whole security development lifecycle shift left as well. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Malcolm, you know, you, you've had many years of experience in this industry. If I am the owner of a company and I suspect a breach has occurred, what are some of the key steps or actions uh, you would advise me to take? Well, I think if you sus suspect a, a breach has occurred, I think it, it, it's two things. There's, there's definitely some companies that I'd say are below uh, what I'll call a security poverty line. Mm -hmm. where they don't necessarily have the resources, they don't have the acumen, they don't have um, the depth to be able to go investigate it themselves. If that's occurred and they suspect that there's been a breach and their uh, service provider who might be doing the IT stuff or their CIO that's there, if they have a small security team, suspects that uh, has occurred, um, first and foremost, I think they've got to assemble an incident response team. They've got to get their legal team involved. They probably have to have their communication and, and public relations team involved. They have to go get a credible external security expert to go help them forensically understand if their belief um, that something has occurred, did it occur, when it occurred, how did it occur? What's the potential business impact? So they're going to have to go through that investigative and incident response process. But they have to have a team that's multidisciplinary to look at all aspects of this, from the technology perspective, from the potential privacy implications, from the fact that it might have a product and service thing. Are you at risk? Are your customers at risk? Or is there potentially a societal risk here? 
um, you need to think about it from the legal and regulatory angle. Do you have any reporting requirements? Are you a public company? Is this potentially a reportable event under Sarbanes-Oxley? Are you a financial company and is there GLBA type items? So you're going to have to have a legal and regulatory angle on this in addition to the technical angle. Um, and you've got to have that team assembled and then carefully and consciously walk the path of the investigation and then determine what actions need to be taken based upon what you find. Well, that's a lot of stuff. And this has been a wonderful and great interview. Malcolm, I want to thank you for spending time with us today at IP Fridays. Thank you, Ken. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.